I'm challenged as it is. Oh my goodness. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I think we're going to get started. I have um, some housekeeping announcements, as you know. So um, we'll get started, and then I'll turn it over to Linda. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and um, welcome to this uh, special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. Every October, we do feature our Grand Rounds on issues related to domestic violence because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So in this presentation, we will provide an overview of the topic of DV and also information on how the trauma of domestic violence can lead to substance abuse, which can lead to what may be viewed as compliance issues within the healthcare system. At the conclusion of this presentation, you, the participant, should be able to describe the impact of trauma, including information about the effects of complex trauma, discuss how trauma affects a patient's ability to comply with treatment goals, including medication compliance, and recognize how coercive control within a patient's relationship with an intimate partner or a caretaker affects compliance and or drug misuse. Before I go any further, I would like to take this opportunity to introduce you to our domestic violence task force here at DH. Uh, you may have seen the article that was written recently um, in DH Today, I think is where it was. And uh, we just want you to know that we're here. We don't provide direct service, but we do um, provide referral information. We can put you in touch with um, the appropriate people in, uh, either within or external to DH. And most of the time, um, that entity is wise uh, who is our community, considered our community experts on issues related to domestic violence. So Abby Tassel just snuck in, and she's the Associate Director of WISE, and she sits on our DV task force here. And also in front of her is Janet Carroll. She's the same nurse in the ED. And Kim Carbonell, right next to her, is, um, uh, represents Human Resources. And that's it. And we, the other folks who are, and yeah, and I'm on the TV task force, actually. And um, Steve Cole, who is from um, uh, Employee Assistance, sits on the task force. Who am I forgetting? Heather Gunnell, who's a practice manager in OB. Pat Loa. Pat Loa, who's a family practice doc. Uh, and, um, and Dan Dahman joins us from time to time. He's the uh, director of security, and he, we consult him um, depending on issues that might arise. And I think that's it. Sue Song from EAP. Sue Song from EAP. I'm not doing a very good re job remembering, so Sue Song from EAP is, uh, joins us as well. Um, okay, so housekeeping. Um, after the program, you will receive an email from our office, the Center for Continuing Education, with a link to an online evaluation. And upon completion of the evaluation, your credit will be automatically posted to your online transcript. So this ties completing the evaluation to receiving credit. So you must complete the evaluation within 30 days of today, the day that we um, do the presentation, in order to receive your credit. Um, and even if you don't need the credit, we really appreciate your feedback. Um, so we look forward to hearing what you have to say about um, all of our, our offerings. Um, for those who are here in the room, please be sure you've signed in. You must attend at least 80% um, of the presentation in order to earn credit. And for those who are viewing online, um, you need to contact Judy Langhands electronically uh, right after this program is uh, completed. Her email is Judith 
dot m as in may dot langhans l a n g h a n s at hitchcock dot o r g and she will register your attendance. Also, if you have questions during the presentation, you can contact Judy and she will share the uh, the questions with our presenter. Let's see what else. Um, we want you to know that neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee um, have any financial interest with any commercial entity related to this uh, topic and no one refused to disclose. So now I'd like to introduce our speaker for this presentation, Linda Douglas. Uh, Linda Douglas is the trauma specialist for the New Hampshire Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. She works to enhance the capacity of member programs of the coalition and local communities to address the effects of trauma and the complex needs of victims with mental health and substance abuse problems. In addition to providing training and consultation to DV programs, Linda has also provided training to DCYF and the Department of Homeless Services. She has her master's in education and counseling from Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, and has worked in the area of substance abuse and DV since the mid-1990s. She is an experienced presenter. She's actually presented here. She presented for us during Sexual Assault Awareness Month in April, um, and she often speaks on topics related to children and trauma, resiliency and attachment, substance abuse and trauma, mental health issues and the effects of trauma. She is... Uh, a trauma expert. <laughs> so, uh, please join me in welcoming Linda here today. Thank you. Oh, I haven't done anything yet. So, um, and I know I don't have a lot of time, so I know I'm going to end up starting to feel a little rushed. So I'm going to talk, and I know there's going to be questions at the end, and I think Judith is getting some, and we'll just we'll hold up until the end for some of the questions. I'm not quite used to doing it that way, but I guess we will. Uh, Deb already went over the objective, so I can skip that. So I really just want to start out with giving a brief overview of what trauma does to the body and brain before I go into what you're going to you're going to be seeing from some of your patients. And I like to start that out as thinking about the game Jenga. Has everybody played Jenga? Does anybody not know what Jenga is? You don't know what Jenga is. I don't think so. It's that uh, tower of blocks that comes out of the box, and then you, you start sliding little pieces out. And I think you know, somebody once said to me that trauma affects the integrity of a person. So I was thinking, is that spiritual integrity? Is that moral integrity, ethical, you know, structural integrity? And I thought, it's about all of those things. And when we first have that tower, it's got some structural integrity, but as things start to happen to a person, from the time that they're a small child, or possibly even in utero, from a small child, it's like having those little blocks starting to move out of that tower, and it starts to get a little shaky. And so you could actually, you're going to have people come to you for services, and you don't know what shape their tower is in. They could be at that point in life where, you know, things are a little shaky, but, you know, they're trying to get the, their um, everything stabilized underneath them. Or this could be somebody who just one more little movement is going to knock the whole thing down. And they really need some additional support to hold it together. And 
I think one of the most important things to realize is that we never know when that person first comes in to see us. We don't have their whole story. Even when we get a history from them, we don't know everything that's happened because sometimes they don't know everything that's happened. So it's really important to realize that. So when we think about the tra traumatic stress that people have experienced, it is really they've had a lot of overwhelming experiences and that's a little different from everybody. They felt threatened in their body, in their mind, in their spirit. They feel helpless and fearful, and it's going to interfere with their relationships and their belief system. And we have a number of sources of traumatic stress that people have experienced, and this is nowhere near all of them. So, but you are going to have folks who come in who've experienced more than one or two of these. And, and often, you're going to see them, and there may be something fairly recent that they're focusing on, but there could be something further back that is even, even harder for them, that, that it is affecting their ability to be able to manage what's going on with them now. So, the, you know, I'm going to go into my brain talk, and it's talking about what actually happens in the body. And this is our, the response that we have that's been with us for thousands of years. It's what kept us safe, you know, when we were first developing in, in, in Africa. In fact, I'm thinking about it. I was listening to a TED talk on the way up here about our origins and, you know, how we managed to keep ourselves safe. So here's the brain. And we've got a couple of spots here. But for those of you that are here in the room, I love the way Dan Siegel does it. He says, we have a model of the brain that we carry with us all the time, and sometimes you can use this to talk to patients who are feeling stressful, is you've got this here, so similar to, I come over here, you've got the hand, and this back here is the cerebellum. This here is the center of the brain, the hippocampal area where the amygdala and the thalamus are located, and that's tucked in here, and then we have our prefrontal cortex up here. So you've got a model of the brain. All the activity surrounding trauma happens in here. And so when somebody has been affected by a traumatic event, the way Dan puts it is that this gets so activated it blows the top off and we're not able to think clearly anymore. So when you look at this, this for those of you who like the, the model stuff, we've got the thalamus up here, which I call the dispatcher. The amygdala is in charge of the fight, flight, or freeze response. And then this part of the brain here is the thinking part of the brain, the part of the brain that reasons things through. That's going to be very important for you to remember when, we, when I talk about patient compliance. So I think I'm going to go back here. So what happens when there's a traumatic event that occurs is the thalamus sends off a message so it could even just be you're driving down a residential section in your hometown and you see a soccer ball come bouncing out from a yard between a couple of cars into the middle of the road. So the message comes out from the thalamus to the amygdala that says that there's danger, you need to do something about it, and the message goes down and you slam on the brake. Just a split second. Following that, the message goes out to this thinking part of the brain saying, okay, we need to evaluate the danger. 
But the way this is set up is so that you act first and think later. Because if we spend too much time thinking about it, we're going to end up causing, a, we're going to hit a child or we're going to run over the ball or whatever. So we want to be able to act first. And so that's what's kept us safe. We saw the tiger in the woods. We ran away. We did not stop to think, I wonder if that tiger is going to eat me. So that's what's happening in the brain. For a lot of our people who have had a lot of those complex experiences over the years and that have piled up, they now have what's called complex trauma. And what's happened is that this portion of the brain goes into default mode where it says, this person is in danger all the time, so I have to be on high alert. And so therefore, this part of the brain gets cut out of the loop and is not operating as well. Okay. So when you have people who are coming in to see you that have been under a lot of traumatic stress from the time that they were little and on through adulthood or having a lot of things happening in adulthood, it is more difficult for them because this part of the brain that they need to use in order to be able to follow through is not working well. They, um, those are, these are the ones that are not going, that are going to be looking over their shoulders, that are going to not be able to sleep. They're going to have sleep issues. They're going to have some more physical issues going on. And it takes time for them to feel better. They need to be safe and stable for a period of time before this part of the brain comes back on again. And you can't really necessarily know how long that's going to take. So the important thing to remember is that while this is going on, there's a number of reactions that are happening in the brain, and there's some chemicals that are being released. There's the adrenaline that comes, and the cortisol, and those are the things that gets the body moving, the adrenaline is that fight, fight, or flee response. The cortisol provides that energy. There's also some oxytocin release because they're um, in order to be able to regulate the feelings. And there's some natural opiates that come out to keep, because you know sometimes when you have a car accident or you fall down, you don't feel the pain for a couple of days, it has to do with those natural opiates that are occurring. But the problem is, is that all of those are whirling around in the brain and it causes the problem that's known as fractured memories. So when something happens, the memories of that event get scattered throughout the brain based on the colors that were there, the sounds that were there, the tastes, the smell, all of those extrasensory experiences are scattered throughout the brain. And I liken it to taking a jigsaw puzzle and dumping all of those puzzle pieces into a, a basket. And that's one event. And then another event happens, and it's all those puzzle pieces get dumped into the basket again. And every single time something happens, so we have a woman who's in, living in with an abuser, and she's being abused on a regular basis, all the puzzle pieces of the memory get tossed into that basket. And then they get shook around because all of that activation that's happening in that center of the brain. And so when someone comes along who needs to hear that story, usually a police officer or someone, <laughs> is going to come up to her and say, 
well, Ms. Smith, I need you to tell me what happened last night between the hours of 9 and 11, and could you please start at the beginning and go through it and not leave anything out? I can see the raised eyebrows. So it's basically, it's like asking someone to, to go into that basket of jigsaw puzzle pieces and find just the puzzle for Mount Washington and starting in the upper left-hand corner and working your way across without touching any other puzzle pieces or leaving anything out. It's impossible to do. So it's, I talked to police officers and advocates about finding ways to help the person feel safe, help them calm down. Sometimes it's just getting a cup of coffee or giving them a couple of days where they feel safe and stable so that the, then the memories can rise to the surface. And what happens then is that the story starts to make sense a little bit more, hopefully, unless there's all sorts of other things going on. But, because um, the person uh, may have some other stuff, but it's just remembering that and having that understanding that it's not going to come back in order. It's going to come back fractured. And so it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together where you have a group of pieces over here and another group of pieces over here and another over here. And then you start putting those together so that they start making a full picture. But there still might be some blanks there because the brain really is set up to protect us. And there may be some things that aren't remembered because the brain is set up that way. Or the person may have dissociated through the whole thing and just shut down completely and now doesn't have access to those memories. So sometimes when you are talking to someone and it feels like they're not telling you the truth, or sometimes what police officers will say after somebody calls them after a couple of days with a part of the story and say, well, now you're just making it up as you go along. Well, part of it is, is that, number one, they're being activated around that you're somebody that they don't know, and so that inability or, or just that not knowing who you are is going to activate them a little bit because they're going to have some trust issues, and it's going to cause them enough stress that the brain is going to get activated enough that it's going to be difficult to always retrieve those memories when they need to be able to retrieve them. And I'm pretty sure that as a SANE nurse, or those of you that have done some work with domestic violence, you've seen that happening, where it's really difficult for people to recall what's happened to them. And it has a lot to do with these memories being fractured. And things start to get mixed up, so they're going to tell you part of one story and then move to another story and things like that. And it all still also comes to the um, difficulties with trusting people because of what's happened to them in the past. So that thinking part of the brain is just constantly being shut off, so there's going to be some difficulties in concentrating and problem solving. And that has to, you remember, if you have somebody who has been experiencing a lot of traumatic stress or complex trauma from the time they were a child, their skill base has to do more with surviving the stress and the trauma that they're experiencing than actually having skills in order to be able to manage what we would look at as everyday life. So um, I, I have a weird analogy on this. It's basically if you grew up in a fishbowl where you were living with sharks and piranhas all the time, you're going to have skills on being able to navigate in that fishbowl of sharks and piranhas. 
<laughs> if you get removed from that and now you're put in a fishbowl of goldfish, you're not going to have the skills. You're going to think that everything you're surrounded by is still sharks and piranhas. And so you're going to act in a way as if that's what you're, you're dealing with. And so when I've talked to some providers and I've worked in mental health and substance abuse for years and people will say, you know, this person's lying to me, they're manipulating me, they're, you know, usually somebody will toss out the, um, a diagnosis like a borderline personality disorder. And I would say, you know, think back that this person has needed to do those things in their life in order to be able to survive in the environment that they were in. And they don't necessarily know and trust you enough or feel safe even in their own body enough to be able to behave in any other way. Because they're going to go to that default position of, I'm in danger and I need to re react as if that's happening. So our jobs become to be able to support the person and being able to feel safe enough to be able to move forward. So this is just a little little review. The brain is just going to continue to release those chemicals so that the body becomes unbalanced and that's when you start to see, see people. is because they're not feeling well and they're going to start coming in. So people are going to be triggered and I wish we'd come up with another word for that. Abby, have they managed to come up with another word for trigger? No. <laughs> I really don't. I'm trying to find something. I usually call it it's that activating piece that causes the body to react as if the trauma is happening all over again. And it can be any of these things, but it can also be those sensory things, like they can smell something, they can see a color, and it's going to just cause the person to react as if it's happening. And um, so you can just look at these. If they feel lack of power and control, if there's conflict in their relationship, it's while you, it's, it's, People will be constantly on their toes waiting for something to happen again because they don't feel safe in the world. It's really affecting their ability to um, be able to move forward at times because they're convinced that my life has been horrible so far and as soon as things look like they're going to get better, I'm pretty certain that they're just going to crash again. So it's just a, so all of these things I often say to advocates that when somebody comes into a shelter program, all of these triggers are going to occur and just by walking through the door because having to tell the story of what happened is triggering. And just as an aside, mothers and children often trigger each other by their presence because they were there when um, some domestic violence happened. So there could be things that they're doing that's triggering each other without even knowing it. Um, there are things that happen in the medical community that can be triggering. And we know that from sexual assault, but just even just the tone of someone's voice. And anybody can really be trauma-informed. It's having that understanding that you want to be able to provide services that don't, that where you try to minimize the amount of triggering that you may do on a person. And I think one time I was went to see a physical therapist over in Concord, and we were in this tiny room, and she did something that was just very trauma-informed, and I was just so pleased with it. She had me lying on the bed, and she was getting ready to do some work, and she told me, I want you to know that the door to this room is locked, 
But sometimes when people open the door across the hall, it sounds like this door is opening. And I just want you to be aware of that so you don't become concerned that somebody's walking in while I'm working with you. And I even, I told her, I said, that is just so trauma-informed that you thought about that how your environment could possibly be stressful for somebody in this room. So it's just those types of things. Now, she didn't ask me beforehand, are you a trauma survivor? Because we don't have to do that with people. We just have to, you know, make sure that the things that we are doing, um, that we let people in. It was like going to the dentist one time, I said, I have a strong gag reflex, so when you do my back teeth, I have a real difficult time when you put the piece in there. And she said to me, when you hear the beep, you can take it out. And you know, I've never had a problem since then, because what she did is she gave me back some power and control over the situation so that I knew that I was going to be able to take it out very quickly. So a lot of the things that we see, like I mentioned before, are actually coping strategies for survival. And they're going to come across as looking at as non-compliance. Um, I worked in a mental health situation as a substance abuse counselor, and I had a gentleman who had a very hard time showing up for his appointments. And I was doing substance abuse work with him, and he was a childhood sexual assault survivor. And also he had, he had been in Vietnam, so he had, a, he had a, some complex trauma. But he was having a real hard time making it to appointments, even though I had said to him, I know your story, you don't have to tell me your story when you come and see me, and we are going to be basically talking about skills that you can use in order to be able to not drink, and we're going to talk about how you can manage those body sensations that you have when you're being triggered. But what would happen is he would get up in the morning and he would look at his calendar and he would say to himself, I have to see Linda this afternoon at 2 o'clock, and the reason I have to see Linda is because I'm an alcoholic, and the reason I'm an alcoholic is because, and he would start getting himself on the cycle because it was just so triggering for him to have to come and see somebody. So he ended up being somebody that we definitely got into case management services so somebody could go and see him rather than him having to come in and see somebody because it was just easier to keep track of somebody. And then he remembered that that thinking part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, is not working as well. So it's going to challenge some of the day-to-day -day functioning. So let me just run back to that again. So think about how that's going to affect just some, in other ways, in compliance, just remembering to take medications, just remembering appointments, remembering to fill out paperwork, those types of things, and also knowing that if this is someone who has had significant trauma in their life, their skills are around managing those piranhas and sharks. It's not necessarily about the other, you know, doing things that you and I may take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. So what's going to happen is that, particularly with domestic violence, you know, of course it's, there's going to be marital problems, but if somebody's had, also had a lot of complex trauma, they're going to have trouble with intimacy. They're not going to be able to trust. It's going to be difficult to feel. They may have been in a situation by their abuser where they've been isolated and not been able to connect with people, and the abuser may have put them in a position where they have lost some family ties, 
He may have said to them, I don't want you contacting your family. They have, may have moved away. So these are going to be some of the things that you may hear. Well, I don't have, you know, I don't talk to my parents. Or, you know, especially I, I, I know places in, in the northern part of the state, there are a lot of victims who are very, very isolated. And I think there are here and, and probably in the Northeast Kingdom too. So, you know, that's something that you may see is that some of this isolation but also because of their trauma history, they may have a dif dif difficulty engaging with people because they've got some secrets. I talked to a woman a few years ago who's, who was being sexually assaulted by a neighbor between the ages of nine and 11. And he told her, if you tell anybody, horrible things are going to happen to you. So she kept that secret until she was in her late 30s. Just but it was still affecting every piece of her life because she was holding on to that, that um, secret. Also, all the feelings that went along with it, the feeling like she was a horrible person, that she had caused this, all of those things that survivors of sexual assault will feel when they've not talked to anybody about it. And then what happened when she told the story is bad things started to happen. It was just coincidentally but those things started to happen. And so she saw that as the perpetrator was telling her the truth. And so that continued to affect her ability to trust and her ability to connect with services. So there's going to be sexual con consequences, difficulty. They'll have flashbacks, which is when you know somebody is, you know, hears a, a sound or sees something in it it triggers that alarm system and they start to feel as if the event is happening all over again. Um, or they may dissociate in front of you because they've started to talk about it and the only way that they can deal with what's coming up for them is to just shut down completely. They may still be able to tell you what's going on, but you're gonna see very little emotion <coughs> behind it. So, so, Sometimes they will get judged as, well, she can't be that upset about it because she doesn't seem to be emotional. She's not crying about it or anything. But what she's actually managing to do is to shut down on what a survivor once told me is, I just put up my screensaver and that's it. You know, I can go away but still be here to tell you the story. And there's going to be all of these other things that are going to be happening to them. So there's going to be these interpersonal problems, there's going to be multiple crises, and there's going to be heightened vulnerability. And one thing that I really have been struggling with lately when I've been talking to some people in um, other communities, not in the medical community, but I keep hearing the words, she continues to choose people who abuse her. And what I want to turn that around to is that because of the trauma, what it does is it increases her vulnerability to, be ch to being chosen by perpetrators. So that we're taking the response, not putting the responsibility on her and saying, oh, you continue to choose these people. It's that understanding that because she's spent so much time in these situations that now she becomes even more vulnerable to perpetrators finding her as a target. And so it's going to be, I don't have enough time to talk about the resiliency, but I just want you to know that, you know, these are things that can, you know, there's still hope and resiliency in there that when a person receives support, that they can 
be able to move beyond these things happening to them. Um, but we also have to make the batters accountable. So now we also, like I talked about with the perpetrator in the situation before where she was told that she needed to keep quiet about what had happened because bad things are, would happen, bad things would happen. We just know that because of domestic violence happening, that the victim is being forced to lie to all of these people in her life and being forced to, to lie to medical providers and to the police officers because she knows that if she tells what's going on, she could be even in even increased danger, okay? And so the, the not telling the story becomes the way that she is managing to survive this situation. Because the fewer people that know about it, actually the less danger she feels like she's in. So she may not tell you everything that's happened. So she fears, <clears throat> She fears that she's going to be further isolated, that people are going to blame her, that she's going to hear things like, well, you continue to choose other people. Why don't you just leave him? What are some other things that people may say to someone who's been living with an abuser? Why do you keep going back? Why do you keep going back? You know, those types of things. You know, being labeled. I remember... Um, Women in, in my mother's generation, I remember my mother even saying one time, and I, was just, I just about fell backwards, and she says, well, some women just like to be abused. And I'm like, uh, no. You know, so it's, it's that, you know, well, she, there must be something wrong with her. You know, all of those types of things. And being, they're afraid of being threatened and destroyed by the abuser, but we're finding out these days that with as public as life is with everybody taking pictures of things that are going on, if we think about the Ray and Janae Rice incident over this past year, how much she has had to deal with because of everybody knowing what happened in her life, and she continues to experience to this day because people are dressing up for Ray and Janae Rice for Halloween, okay? So she's continuing to experience this over and over thanks to what uh, social media can do to people. So it's re really being afraid of what's gonna happen in the home, in society, and you know, in the community if something comes out about what's been happening. So there's gonna be medical problems, possibly some mental health issues, and eating disorders, some things that you're gonna see. You know, you think about all of those chemicals being released in the system and the body going full force trying to survive. It's like somebody's living constantly with one foot on the brake and the other foot on the, one foot on the gas pedal and the other foot on the brake constantly and that engine is being revved and things are gonna get, get wore out. And we know more and more these days about stress-related illnesses. And so you're gonna see that. They're gonna lose, um, be, lose things in their life and be afraid that they're going to lose even more, okay? So what happens 
to a person <coughs> is that they've been in this cycle of living in unsafe relationships and having um, traumatic events happening in their lives that may not be necessarily related to the relationship. But then they experience domestic violence and they're trying to look at ways to be able to self-medicate that reaction that's happening in their body. They want to be able to sleep. They want to be able to go to the grocery store without having anxiety. They want to be able to take care of their children. They want to be able to do a few things and they find out that if they take some medication and they have a glass of wine or two, then they're able to function. So what happens is, and I've seen this happen for a number of women, is they go come into the doctor. Actually, this happened in New Hampshire over the past five years. A woman went to her doctor, and I don't know who he is, or else I, would, I don't know what I would do. She talked about her anxiety and everything, and she actually was honest with him and told her, told the doctor that when her husband came home from work at night, that he was very, very abusive, and that this was, this was connecting to the anxiety in her life. And the doctor said, well, I'm gonna give you some Valium, and what you need to do is you need to take some Valium before your husband gets home, so that you calm down and you'll be less likely to um, cause your husband to hit you, okay? So, and so, it's, it, so she's being self-blamed, and then she's also being, she's being blamed, but she's also being medication, given medication that she may go home and take that Valium and then find out if she has a glass or two of wine on, on top of it that she's not really going to care. So people get into this cycle because of what's been happening to them. They also get into this cycle, I wanna see where I'm going here. Um, forget the slide. Um, because of like the gentleman I talked about earlier who had the childhood trauma and then was drinking as a result. And, but what also happens is that sometimes, and a good portion of the time, I have to more than say sometimes, is that the abuser, the perpetrator himself, may be using drugs and alcohol as a means of coercion and being able to control within that relationship. So I already talked about this. I would have a tendency to get ahead of myself. So for many of our survivors, using drugs and alcohol have worked as a means of coping with the effects of trauma. And they are afraid to lose this because they don't know how they're going to survive without it. And one of the things that happened in the domestic violence movement about 20 years ago, and it's been getting better and better over the years, is that realization that we couldn't expect women to be clean and sober before they came into shelter. When I was first started doing this 20 years ago, we would have programs that would pick up the phone and, and, and actually ask, have you had anything to drink in the past 24 hours? And if she said yes, we would say, well, you need to be sober for 24 hours before you can come into the shelter. Which is very hard to do when your partner is coercing you into drinking and saying, if you don't drink, I'm gonna hit you. Or in the case of one woman I worked with, her husband would tie her to a chair and inject her with heroin every day. Because he knew that if she tried to leave him, she would want to come back because she would start to get dope sick or she would look for somebody else in the community that he knew because it, it was, you know, the heroin community was quite tight. So if she went to look to find somebody else, it would be somebody that would report back to him where she was. So she didn't have an escape route. So she's trying to 
And a lot of times programs will say, well, you need to get clean before you can do anything else. But if she's still living in the situation, that's not going to be something that she can easily do. And I've had talks with programs is that when you're looking at trauma too, if that's what she's doing in order to be able to live with the effects of trauma, you have to provide something else for her to use. You can't just say you need to be clean and sober. You have to say, here are some things that you can do in order to be able to sleep that doesn't require drinking. You can do um, things that you can do to take care of yourself in order so that you can put off drinking or using drugs. So there has to be that component, which is why we like to look at things more holistically. Um, in fact, I'm glad Abby's here because in their program they're doing a number of things and so it doesn't have to be a medical model. It can be, let's go work with horses, let's do some yoga work. There's a lot of good work being done with yoga and stress and trauma. And so just being able to do some of the body-based type things in order to be able to tell people so that they can start feeling better in that body that is reacting to all of the trauma they've been experiencing. Um, if you if if you send me an email or talk to Judith, I can get this for you. This is actually if you Google power and control model for women's substance abuse, it's the standard power and <laughs> control wheel that we've been using in domestic violence for years. But it also talks about substance abuse. And you up here when he uses emotional abuse, he may make her feel guilty for her past drug use or put her down. He may abuse her for getting high, or he may abuse her for not getting high. He may prevent her from getting drug treatment. It's like you're going to an AA meeting, what time are you going to be leaving, how soon you're going to be back, or preventing her from going, or just making it really difficult. Who did you talk to? What did you talk about? Um, all those types of things. Or having alcohol or drugs available there when she gets home from the meeting. Saying she caused the abuse with her drug use. I've seen more than five cases of this happening where he has promoted, coerced everything to get her drinking so that when the police show up, he can say, look at her, she's a drunk. I didn't hit her, she fell down the stairs. You can't believe her. Look what I have to put up with, okay? And she's sitting there going, he hit me, he hit me, but the police are looking at somebody who's exceedingly drunk. Um, he may force her to prostitute for drugs or drug money. He may have introduced her to the drugs. He may force her to sell them. And he may threaten to hurt her if she uses or does not use the drugs. So it becomes a part of that pattern of coercive control in the relationship. So some of the things that you're going to see, um, and I've seen this in the mental health community, is sometimes you're going to have somebody that is normally you're going to look at and you're going to say, She's got some drug-seeking behavior, okay? She comes in, she's gotten a prescription, and it's a 30-day prescription, and she runs out after 10 days. And so there's questioning her about whether, you know, what happened, and she may tell, may have a story, whatever. But where, where we also need to go is to find out if she's safe in her relationship and what's happening there. Now, she may not be able to answer the question because of safety factors, because she's fearful of what's going to happen to her if she goes home and, and tells that the fact that he's been taking her meds and he's either using them herself, himself or he's been selling them. 
And then he's threatening her that she needs to go back and get some more because he needs, he needs to sell some more because he needs to have this, okay? And I've seen this um, in community mental health. There were a couple of people that were coming in and they were running out of meds a lot and they did this whole thing and they found out that, that the, um, the person who was coming in was living in a household where there were people who would then steal those meds and go out and, and sell them or were taking them themselves. And so it's, it's making sure that we sort of mine into the information to make sure that there may not be other things besides just that drug-seeking behavior. Um, being able to follow up with appointments. You know, he's afraid that she's going to tell somebody about what's going on. She may have been abused the night before her appointment and now she's got marks and you are the people who are going to expect her to be removing some items of clothing that could possibly expose what's been happening. So she's gonna not show up for appointment or change that appointment to a time when those bruises are not going to be there. So there's a number of things that could be happening and you may not necessarily be able to find those things out, okay? I want to give some time for questions, so I'm going to just breeze through this. I started saying, instead of asking, why does she stay? Why don't we start asking what keeps her from being able to leave? We know that women leave an average of seven times before they stay away, but we also know that women are more likely to be hurt at the time that they leave and, or after they leave than they are while they're staying in the relationship. So they know that leaving is not necessarily going to be the answer to all of their problems because he's just going to amp up the power and control and become even more angrier and possibly hurt her or her children or family members once she leaves. One of the things that I've often heard from providers is, well, she's just codependent or she's addicted, addicted to her abuser. And I just challenge people to take a look at the skills that she has have to do with living in that abuse and living with the abuser and knowing what he's doing is easier than being away and wondering what he's doing every single day. I got this when I was talking to somebody I was doing some substance abuse counseling for with a woman and she had a cell phone and it was ringing constantly pretty much and she was 60 miles away from her abuser and he was calling her all day and I was not having a good day, I was not thinking clearly and I said, why don't you just get your number changed? And she you know, had that codependent thinking going on because I was in my substance abuse mode and she gave me an education. She said, if I change my number and he can't get a hold of me, he's going to come looking for me. At least this way, he's leaving me voicemail messages all day, and I know what kind of mood he's in, and I know what he's doing, and I know what he's thinking, but if I don't have that, I'm going to be more scared, and I'm going to end up having to go back because I'm going to have to figure out what it is he's up to. Now, that's a whole different ballgame than being codependent. This is about, this is what I need to do for my safety. So it's just remembering that when you're talking to folks. I've also recently um, taken a look at what are those barriers in society that keep people from being able to leave. And you know, we look at the state um, of New Hampshire and just think of different parts of the state 
and there's limited transportation and limited job opportunities and um, limited housing op opportunities. I don't know what it's like in this part of the state, but I know in Nashua, the Section 8 housing list is seven to 10 years long, and in Concord, I think it's five to six years. So being able to get affordable housing is a real issue for a lot of people, and so he's gonna reinforce that. You can't afford to live without me. How are you gonna get an apartment with you and two kids? You know, you're gonna have to leave, and so I know that I've got more control over you. So it's those barriers like housing and financial opportunities and transportation that are keeping her from leaving. Um, you know, she may not have the resources in her area. She may be living, you know, way up in Coas County someplace and she's not able to get to the places that she needs to be to. And she doesn't want to leave her social and cultural support. She may have you know, she still wants to be near her mother. She still wants to be near, if she lives in an immigrant community, she still wants to be near them because of the language issue. So he's understanding that and he knows he has her even more isolated. Um, if she has physical, if she has some physical disabilities, he can use that as a way to, a very good way to isolate her. I've known of abusers who've moved the wheelchair into another room and kept her in bed while he's at work so he knows she's got no place to go, okay? Not providing what needs to be, what she needs in order to be able to take care of herself because it gives him even more control over her. So, and using her disability as a way to humiliate her. Uh, same thing with mental health issues. This one's a tougher one for me to talk to about because I know it's taking months and months to get people into services. But it's if she even goes in and she's being put on one medication, something as benign as Prozac or Zoloft, or she's giving an anti-anxiety, he's gonna tell her, you're on medication, that means you're crazy, I'm gonna be able to get custody of the other kids. And she's going to believe him because she's isolated enough to not know any different, okay? And he's making sure she doesn't get the information she needs in order to know that it's not true. So I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to go ahead and just invite you to take a look at some of these. There, these slides are available. You've got them. Judith has them. And so um, she can send them out. And um, you know, job opportunities, those types of things. So I know some people had questions, so I just wanted to go ahead and go with that um, at this point, because we've got about five minutes left. Did you get any questions on? No. no? I'm go curious ahead. about restraining orders and sort of the pros and cons of them in terms of increasing the risk or decreasing the risk or what the practicality of that is. That's a pretty big subject. I, I guess I need to repeat that. You want to know about restraining orders and the pros and cons and, and those things. You know. We like to, that is something that you talk to the survivor about as to whether or not she feels that that is going to be something that is going to work for her. And she may actually say, you know, I've tried it before and he violated it or it doesn't seem to make any difference. He's not going to care. And you're going to hear a lot of that for survivors. And it also depends on locality to locality, how those restraining orders are enforced by law enforcement. And that's not consistent from community to community. So if um, 
perpetrators were being, if those were being enforced, maybe it would have a little bit. On the other hand, I also like to let victims know that having a restraining order also had, provides a paper trail that can be used further on. The same way as if, you know, go to the emergency room, have pictures taken, have things documented, because it may not make a difference now, but it may, after a while, you'll have then enough documentation that you can show that this has been something that's been happening over a period of time. So the, you know, those are some of the pros and cons, but it's, it's you know, just talking to the victim and finding out what she feels is going to work for her. Um, I think that's just, that's the, definitely the biggest part of it. Because she's the one who's going to say, you know, if I leave, he's coming after me, whether there's a piece of paper in place or not. Or, you know, no, the, the, you know, I'll go ahead and get a restraining order. And if she doesn't want to get the restraining order, then I'll talk about the other things that it could possibly help with. Maybe not keeping him away, but it'll provide her with, with something. So I think on the final, did I talk, I know there were some people that came in with some questions on compliance issues. Did I touch on that? Anything or would have those people already left? Okay. So really, when you take a look at it, Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery back in the early 1990s, she said that there's three um, steps to healing from trauma. And the first one is up there is that safety and stabilization. Somebody has to feel safe. And so there's, there's not going to be a, a lot that you can, well, there are things that you can do, but it, the person needs to be, even feel safe in her own body. I've talked to people who said, I want to know how to stop feeling the way that I do, because they had all those symptoms of PTSD. But then I found out the person was still being stalked and sexually assaulted and all of those things by the abuser. And I said, well, number one, you don't have PTSD because it's still going on. And that is that those reactions that are having for, for you are in a way keeping you safe. That hypervigilance, that looking over your shoulder, you are, it's not like there's some phantom out there. You have somebody who's really coming and looking for you. So we don't want to numb you out. But we can talk about some things that you can do to try and calm down the reaction at times so that you still can be able to sleep and all of this. But she, this was somebody who, if she let her guard down a little bit, he was going to show up. So then the next step is being able to tell the story. You can't tell the story, though, until you feel this. And then finally, the final step is in relationship. The trauma occurred in relationships, so there, the healing has to occur in relationship, and that happens when we've got trauma-informed services and supports, and that the supports are also culturally competent and relevant. And I think that's it for now, because it's almost 1 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you.